Thank you for listening to the Crossridge Podcast. Today's message is by Senior Pastor Mark Farnell. For more information about Crossridge Church, visit our social medias or go to our website at crclife.org. We hope you enjoy the message. And as you're being seated, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. God is teaching us about living His way through the example of these believers in the first church in Jerusalem. These believers were devoted to God and to one another. Uh, These believers were living God's way in God's power. And God is using their example to encourage us, to challenge us, to teach us uh, about how we can uh, live His way in His power. Luke is our author uh, of the book of Acts. And uh, Luke wrote, beginning again, Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is a, about 3,100 members of the, the church there in Jerusalem at this point in time. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord had added to their number those who were being saved. We see uh, great things were happening here in this church family. God is using this uh, family to encourage us this morning. We're identifying commitments that God wants us to make, renew, or increase so that we can continue living his way day by day. For some, that means to make these commitments. For some, that means to renew these commitments that we've made at a point in time. We just need to renew and refresh them. For others, it means to increase these commitments, to do even more as the Lord leads us. These commitments will help us stay devoted to God and to one another. These commitments will help us live God's way in God's power. So I want to review uh, quickly here these commitments that we've already covered in the past few weeks. The first commitment is that we need to be biblical. Uh, these believers that were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We need to devote ourselves to the Word of God, to sitting under the preaching and teaching of the Word, to reading the Word, to studying the Word, to memorizing the Word, to obeying the Word, to being able to share the Word with those around us. The second commitment was to be relational. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. These brothers and sisters were family in Jesus, and they did life together. And God wants us to devote ourselves to Him and to one another, to be relational with one another. We need each other. Uh, We see that the consistent theme throughout the Word of God. We need God, and then we need one another. The third commitment is be missional. Every day, the Lord added to their number those being saved. Like these believers, we have the privilege uh, to watch God change lives for eternity in, through, and around us. We share, we serve, we minister, we love, God saves. We have the joy of being able to show Jesus to others and share Jesus with others. And so we want to 
continue to be missional, reaching out to those close to us and also those far from us. The fourth commitment was be generous. These believers were together, Luke said, and they held all things in common. They were generous with their time, talents, and treasures. They were generous towards God first and foremost because they knew all they had and all they were was from God. All their time, talents, and treasures was from God, and so they were generous with God and giving their time, talents, and treasures to him, but they were also generous with one another and their time, talents, and treasures with one another. So God wants us as well to be generous, uh, to be generous in regards to our time and our talents and treasures and how we spend those with God and with one another. Generosity is the way for us to live as followers of Jesus Christ. The fifth commitment was be confident. These believers were confident in the risen Savior Jesus. They were confident God saved them by his grace. They were confident God was meeting their needs. They were confident God was working in their lives, growing them in their faith. Their confidence in Jesus compelled them to live for Jesus. We, too, are confident in the risen and exalted Savior, King Jesus. We are confident God has saved us by his grace. We are confident God is at work in us, through us, and around us. We are confident that God is transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. We are confident that God is empowering us to be witnesses for Jesus. We are confident that God is meeting all our needs. It is our confidence in Jesus that allows us and compels us to live for Jesus, striving each day with all that is within us, relying on the power of God to ultimately allow us to live for Jesus. The sixth commitment is be excited. Exciting things were happening in this church. I just have a picture, an image in my mind, as these believers met together in their homes, as they met together in the temple area, there was great excitement as they got together with one another. Exciting things were happening in this church. And I believe exciting things are happening in our church family. It's exciting to come together week in and week out together with you, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to see all that God is doing here in our church family. I can't wait to get here week in and week out. It's exciting to see God at work in our midst. It's exciting to join God at work in our midst. It's exciting to praise God for his work in our midst. We have the privilege, and I hope you understand, it's our joy and privilege in our church family to be able to say, go, God, go, a lot around here. We get to say that a lot. That's praising God. God, you go and do your work in us and for us and through us and around us. If we stopped our study of this first church in Jerusalem at the end of chapter two, if we just decided, you know what, we're going to stop our study right here at the end of chapter two, we might think the Christian life is the easy life. We might think come to Jesus and like these believers, everything's going to work out. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. All your needs will be met. Everything will be taken care of. You'll have no more problems, stress, or challenges at all if we stopped our study at the end of chapter 2. Now, if we thought those things, we would be wrong. 
as you know, the Christian life is the best life. The Christian life is the blessed life. But the Christian life is not the easy life. I'm so thankful God was honest with us in his word on this point. Jesus told us, the world will hate you because it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The world being defined as those who are spiritually dead in their sins. Those who are separated from God by their sin against God, without a relationship with God. The beliefs, the messages, the philosophies of those who are spiritually dead in their sins. Those living in opposition to God and rebellion against God. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. We see other authors were honest with us. James told us to consider it great joy, pure joy, all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, various different kinds, many kinds of trials. He said when, not if. Paul told us everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter told us, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering. You will have tribulations. You will have trials. You will have pain. You will have challenges. You will have difficulties in this world. But take heart. Be of good courage. I have conquered the world. And so with these truths in mind, I want us to identify this final commitment that we see in this passage that God wants us to make, renew, increase, and practice today and this week so that we can continue living his way. The seventh commitment for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ is be alert. Be alert. It's so important for us, it's so necessary for us to be alert spiritually. Jesus told Peter, James, and John as they were sleeping rather than praying in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before he was to be arrested by the mob and taken away for the crucifixion. Jesus said, stay awake, be alert, be watchful. Paul, in his final words to the believers of the church in Corinth, in his first letter to these believers, he commanded them, be alert. Peter, again and again, in his letters, challenged believers, that includes us, be alert. The scriptures tell us over and over again, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be alert spiritually. We need to be on guard spiritually. Why is this so important? When God saved us by his grace through our faith in Christ Jesus, we became part of God's family. As Jesus told us, he has chosen us out of the world. He's chosen us by his grace out of the world. We are in this world, we're not of this world. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. When God saved us, we became part of his family. 
We're brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. When God saved us by his grace through our faith in Christ Jesus, we also entered the battle of spiritual warfare. God is at work in us. Satan is at work on us. Our battle spiritually is against Satan and his demonic forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. Satan wants to keep us from all that God has for us. Satan wants to keep us from being who God wants us to be. Satan wants to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. This battle of spiritual warfare is fought in our minds. The battlefield is our minds. It's your mind and it's my mind. Satan bombards our minds with his lies, accusations, temptations, and doubts. They're designed to discourage and devour us because he wants to keep us from what God has for us. We see examples of this in this passage we're going to look at this morning. Satan is a liar. Jesus actually said that Satan is the father of lies in John chapter 8. That means Satan is the number one ranked liar and deceiver of all time. It also means he is the number one ranked liar and deceiver. There's no one better than him. He is and will always be ranked number one. Satan is an accuser. And I think at times we don't acknowledge this, maybe as much as we should. Scripture tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. What does that mean? It means this. Satan accuses you and me as followers of Jesus Christ of terrible things. Because he wants to hurt us. He wants to discourage us so that we'll give up on God. So he's bombarding our minds on a day-by-day basis with not only his lies, but his accusations against us. Because there's no one who talks to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. There's no one that has a running conversation with us as much as us. And so the battlefield is the mind. We are always thinking. Our enemy knows this. And so he accuses us. Not only does he lie to us, but he accuses us. And sometimes he'll combine them. And what he does is he accuses us and he tells us things that are not true, designed to hurt us, designed to discourage us so that we'll give up on God. He loves to take our mistakes from the past and bring them into the present to try to trip us up. Those sins that God has forgiven and placed as far as the east is from the west, he loves to accuse us of those sins and remind us of those sins and bring them back up. He loves to tell us that we're a failure, that God doesn't love us, that God is not with us, that God can't use us, that God doesn't want to use us. We've made too many mistakes in the, mistakes in the past. We will not be able to be a godly husband. We'll not be able to be a godly wife. Our wives won't respond to us. Our husbands won't respond to us. Our kids won't respond to us. We've made too many mistakes. Our kids won't listen to us. The reason our kids are making the decision they're making is because of you and your mistakes and what you've done in the past. God's not going to take care of your needs. God's not going to meet you at your point of need. This isn't going to turn out well. You won't be able to see change in this situation. You won't be able to see change in that relationship. Your children will never end up being a success. Your job is not going to change. Your marriage is not going to ever work out. Nothing will ever change. Give up on God. Throw in the towel. He's constantly 
accusing us. And when we aren't alert, we spin out of control into discouragement, into pain, into depression, because that's what's on our mind. And we're listening to that, and we begin to believe that, and he does what he wants to do. He takes us down. He'll take us down. He's a liar. He's an accuser. He's a tempter. Satan tries to lure and entice us away from God so that we'll follow him rather than God. Satan wants us to do what he says. He wants us to follow him into sin. And here's what he'll do. He'll tell us, if you'll do what I say, if you'll follow me into sin, I will satisfy and fulfill you. If you'll do this, if you'll go there, if you'll look at that, if you'll say this, you'll find satisfaction and fulfillment. We know the appeal of sin is real or we would never be tempted. However, the appeal and fun of sin doesn't last long. Sin never satisfies us. It always leaves us empty and unfulfilled. Always leaves us empty and unfulfilled. And so this is just a small summary, just a surface-level summary, the battle that we are all engaged in as followers of Jesus Christ. Peter shared this battle. as He highlighted this battle for us. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9 He said, be sober-minded and alert, for your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. We need to be spiritually alert. We need to be on guard spiritually because we are engaged in the battle of spiritual warfare. As Paul told Timothy, we are engaged in the good fight of the faith. God is working in us, which tells us our enemy Satan is working against us and on us. We see this in the testimony of our lives. We see this in the testimony of the scriptures. And we see this at part here in this passage as we travel just a little beyond chapter 2 in the book of Acts. Three ways that we need to be alert. Three reasons, three ways we need to be alert spiritually. Number one, we face opposition from within us, from inside us. We need to be alert spiritually because we face opposition inside us. Though we are saved by God's grace through our faith in Christ Jesus, we still battle with the sinful desires of our flesh. My biggest challenge in life is me. Your biggest challenge in life is you. We are prone to wander away from God into sin. We are prone to give in to his lies, accusations, temptations, and doubts. We are prone to choose the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of one's possessions as John warned us about. We have this sin that still resides inside us. Yes, we're saved by God's grace. Yes, we're on our way to glory, but we're not there yet. And we won't 
be completely sanctified until we step into glory and become just like Jesus. And so in this in-between time, we still battle with the desires of our sinful flesh that desire the things that are against God. Peter understood this and warned us, abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Paul understood this and warned us, don't give the enemy a foothold. What does that mean? What he's saying is don't even give the enemy a small area of your life. Don't even allow him to get his foot in the door. A foothold is just enough. You put your foot in the door to keep it from closing. Why? So that you can, what can you do? You can pry it open because as you, if you got a foothold, you can open that door to where you can get your whole body through. Paul uses this analogy. He says, don't even allow the enemy a foothold in your life. Yield every area of your life over to the Lord. Don't tell the Lord, God, I'm going to give you all these areas, but I'm going to keep this area and this area for myself because it is in that foothold area that the enemy will do his work. And it'll take you down. And so we understand we need to be alert spiritually to this battle inside us. This battle that goes on inside us, in our minds. We also, a second reason, we need to be alert, but we face opposition inside the church. We face opposition inside us, but we also face opposition inside the church. It didn't take long for the believers in this church family to see this unfold here in the first church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5, turn just a page over to Acts chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Luke is telling us about a circumstance that happened where there was some opposition that started to rise up within the church, inside the church with some of the believers. Luke wrote in Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now we know about being generous because we just read about it at the end of chapter 2 and we read about it again at the end of chapter 4. If you want to look up and you'll see another uh, summary of generosity at the end of chapter 4. So we're now in chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. We know God takes that seriously with this church. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart. You have not lied to people, but to God. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God about their giving to God. They acted as if they brought to Peter and the church all the proceeds. It wasn't a problem that they kept some back. The problem was they were lying and acting as if all they received for the land was given to the church. They were lying to the people, but more importantly, they were lying to God. And God disciplined them for his, their sin against him, and they lost their lives immediately. They lost their lives. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us God takes obedience and holiness and unity in his family seriously. He takes it seriously. It also tells us 
Satan loves to sow division and disunity in the church. And he loves to use church people in the process of sowing division and disunity in the church. He loves to get church people to talk about church people instead of talking to church people. That presents dissension and division and disunity in the body. And so we understand and realize what Satan really wants us to do is he wants us to believe our battle is against one another instead of him. So he fills us with his greatest attempts to just fill our hearts and minds with anger and bitterness and hurt and resentment and unforgiveness towards one another. Because he knows if we have that in our hearts towards one another, we're not going to be able to keep it to ourselves. And when he's at work, we're not going to take it to God where we need to take it and leave it at his throne and move forward in forgiveness. No, we're going to keep it to ourselves and we're going to share it with one another, which ultimately stirs up more dissension, division, and disunity and brings damage to the church. You see, we've got to be careful. We've got to be spiritually alert. We face opposition from Inside us, we face opposition inside the church. But then we also, the third, we have, we have to be careful. Uh, we face opposition from outside the church. If you look in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we see this also happen real quickly here in this first church in Jerusalem. These believers started facing opposition within themselves, within the church, but also outside the church. In chapter 4, verse 1, while they were speaking to the people, that being Peter and the disciples, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees continued or confronted them because they were annoyed. They were annoyed. They were provoked. They were upset. They were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. The Jewish priests, the captain of the temple police, the Sadducees, they opposed Peter and the disciples. They were not happy that Peter and the disciples continued to preach and teach in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, exalted, and the only way to God. They weren't happy that this, at one point, small group of Christ followers had very quickly become a large thriving group of Christ followers. The disciples and this growing church threatened the Sadducees' political power and their connection with Rome. The disciples in this growing church angered the Jewish priests because they continued preaching and teaching the resurrection of Jesus whom they had just crucified. So these religious leaders finally took matters in their own hands and they arrested the disciples. They threatened the disciples to stop preaching and teaching Jesus. And they even beat and flogged the disciples for preaching and teaching Jesus. They physically beat them, flogged them for preaching Jesus. This 
didn't stop with the disciples. It actually spread. This persecution spread against the believers in the first church in Jerusalem. As the religious leaders forced many of those 3,100 folks, forced many of them to leave Jerusalem. They thought, this is the only way we're going to be able to stop this growing church. We're going to stop this movement. We're going to stop these followers of Jesus. And they forced many of them to actually move and leave Jerusalem. And the hopes that that would stop the church, it we know it only spread the church. Today, we see this continue as believers around the world are facing persecution and opposition for their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you put value in statistics today, it's at a greater rate than it's ever been in the history of the church. It's becoming more unpopular by the day here in our country, to stand firm in our faith in Jesus, to believe, to preach, teach, and share the truth about Jesus. It's becoming more and more and more of a challenge for us followers of Jesus Christ. Now, all of this opposition and persecution is sponsored by Satan. And we are no match for Satan in our strength, in our wisdom. So I need to be spiritually alert. We're no match for him in our strength and wisdom in any of these different areas within ourselves, within the church, or outside the church. But thankfully, we are victors in Jesus. Amen? We are victors in Jesus. Say that with me out loud. We are victors in Jesus. Tell your neighbor, I'm a victor in Jesus. We are victors in Jesus. We know and understand Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death for us with his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. God counted our sin to Christ on the cross of Calvary. God counts the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to us at the moment of our salvation. We are right with God. We are children of God. We are forgiven by God in Christ Jesus. We have new life, abundant life, eternal life with God in Christ Jesus. We fight from victory in Jesus, not for victory. We are more than conquerors and overcomers in Christ Jesus. And we know this and we understand this and therefore we have to ask ourselves the simple question as we look at this passage, as we understand this commitment, as we look to make it, to renew it, to increase it, to practice it today and this week, how can we be spiritually alert? What are some things that we can do? How can we be spiritual alert? How can we be on guard spiritually? I get it. I see it. I understand it. I know it rages inside me. I see what's going on. I understand there's a battle that I'm in the middle of it. Whether I like it or whether I understand it completely, I'm in it as a follower of Jesus Christ. So how can we be spiritually alert? Well, the answers are right here in this passage. They're right here. We've already covered the answers. And so we're going to reinforce them again this morning. How can we be spiritual alert? Real simple. Number one, get in God's word. Be biblical. The more we know the word of God, the more spiritually alert we will be. The more we hide God's word in our heart, the less we'll sin against him. The more we hide God's word in our heart, the more we'll be equipped and able and ready for the battle that rages in our minds so that when we are out in the mission field and our enemy is bombarding our minds with his lies, accusations, and temptations, the more we hide God's word in our heart, the more we'll be able to call up scripture and we'll be able to walk in victory through that temptation. We'll be able to explode that lie with the truth of God. We're able to resist that false accusation against us because we have been blood bought by the blood Jesus shed for us on the cross of Calvary. Jesus is our example. 
when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan on three different occasions, what did he do? He just simply quoted scripture. And the scriptures tell us, Matthew wrote, Satan left because he's a liar and he cannot stand up to truth. And so we need to get in God's word. God's word is his word of truth for you and for me. If we're going to be spiritually alert, then we got to get in the word of God. We got to know it. We got to share it with one another so that we can help one another stay alert spiritually. Second is stay close to one another. These believers were devoted to the fellowship. We need to stay close to one another. As Peter told us in 1 Peter 5 and verse 9, uh, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Peter was not saying misery loves company. Peter was saying there's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so we know that we need one another. So we need to stay close to one another. When we're biblical, we take the word of God and we bring it into our relationships with one another and we're able to support one another, encourage one another, hold one another accountable. We're able to bless one another. When we are staying close to one another, we're able to know how and when and where to lift one another up. How, when, and where to confront one another. How, when, and where to correct one another. How, when, and where to rebuke one another. How, when, and where to love one another. How, when, and where to encourage one another. How, when, and where to help one another. How, when and where to support one another, how, when, and where to comfort one another. We're able to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of us is hardened by sin's deception. Getting in God's word and staying close to one another helps us to stay spiritually alert. A third way is through prayer. These believers were devoted to prayer. As Peter challenged us in 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert. Say that with me out loud. Be alert. One more time. Be alert and self-controlled and sober-minded, Peter said, for prayer. Prayer is a way we focus on God so that we can hear from God. Prayer is a way we get fresh air from God. Prayer is a way we depend on God. We admit our weakness and we humbly ask for God to move and work in our lives, to give us the direction we need, the hope we need, the strength we need the understanding we need, the answers we need, the mindset that we need. Prayer helps us to stay alert spiritually and on guard as we're lifting our voice to the Father, as we're praying for His will to be done on earth and our lives and our marriages and our families and our workplaces and our schools and our neighborhoods and our homes and our churches as we're praying for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're able to stay alert spiritually. Prayer helps us to stand firm in our faith in Jesus. Prayer helps us to walk in obedience to Jesus. These believers understood the necessity of prayer. Their community was started and built on prayer. As you remember when Jesus shared right before ascending into heaven, he said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Father to send the Holy Spirit. They got together and they were waiting in Jerusalem, 120 at that point in time. And what did Luke tell us? He told us they were there in Jerusalem. They were gathered together in room and they were praying. They were praying. And we see this emphasis. Prayer helps us to stay spiritually alert. A fourth is praise. Luke told us in chapter 2 that these believers were praising God. Uh, the tense of that verb there tells us that they were doing it continually. Over and over again, they were praising God. In the good times and the bad times. They were praising God on the mountaintops, in the valleys. They were praising God at every step and place in between. 
Luke even went so far as to tell us that Peter and the disciples, after they had been beaten, after they had been flogged, after they had suffered intense pain because of their faith in Jesus, because of their refusal to stop preaching and teaching Jesus, when the religious leaders uh, accused them and the soldiers, the Roman authorities uh, beat them, as they were being released, Luke told us, that Peter and the disciples, what did they do? They left rejoicing and praising God. What? They left rejoicing and praising God. Why? That they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's being spiritually alert. To a whole different level. That's increasing this commitment. By the power of God for the glory of God. And it's instructive for us. As we worship God, as we praise God. We keep our eyes on God. It's next to impossible to sing our praises to God, to give that sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, to give our sacrifice of praise without thinking about the one we're praising. How amazing he is that he's with us, that he's for us. As we praise God, we are reminded even in our pain, even in our sorrow, even in our grief, even in the most difficult times, even when we're facing all kinds of challenges and difficult news from a health perspective, from a relationship perspective, from a career perspective, whatever the case may be, we're reminded as we praise God that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us one day in heaven. And so it's that praise that helps us to stay alert spiritually. And then we also know a fifth way is that we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We remember this sacrifice of Jesus. It's so important for us. These believers devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And certainly that meant meeting in house to house and enjoying one another's fellowship, eating food together, eating meals together. But these fellowship meals also included receiving the Lord's Supper together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross so that we could receive forgiveness of sin, so that we could enter a relationship with God, so that we could call God our Abba Father. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, remembering that Jesus gave his life for us so that we might be able to give our life to him and live our life for him. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus helps us to stay spiritually alert today. And for all that God has in store for us. So we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together this morning. If you uh, were not able to receive the elements, the juice, and the bread as you entered the worship center, I want to encourage you to slip out and go get those now. Uh, They're through the double doors on the tables right outside. If you were not able to receive the elements as you entered. And then I want to ask you to just bow in prayer. I want to ask if we all just bow in prayer. And we're going to uh, spend this time now with the Father. The Lord's Supper is a sacred time of worship for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ, where we're able to remember 
the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross. It's during this Lord's Supper time that we're able to remember that Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous ones, to bring us to God. We're able to remember this sacrifice was necessary because we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We've all turned away from God in our sin against God. There is none of us who are righteous, no, not one, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed God's mark of holiness and perfection. And therefore, we have no way of getting to God and getting rid of our sin and getting to God on our own. We were in a desperate situation. We needed help. We needed someone to provide a perfect sacrifice for us because the only way imperfect us could get into a relationship with the perfect God would have to be through a perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we might, through that perfect sacrifice, be able to receive forgiveness of sin and be ushered in to the presence of God, righteous in his sight. Jesus is the perfect Savior. He offered his life as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He took our place on the cross. He paid our price for sin. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. He died on the cross in our place. He was buried in the tomb and he rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death for you and for me. And so in these moments, I wanna encourage you just to pray. And as you do, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Allow your heart and your mind to be led by the Spirit of God. Allow the Spirit to minister to you the Word of God in regards to the sacrifice Jesus paid. But as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, during this time, we also renew our commitment to Jesus to surrender ourselves to him. The scriptures call for us to take this time of worship seriously, that we're not to receive the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Beginning of verse 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. God wants us to make sure that our hearts are right with him and one another. So we're not to receive this Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. What does that mean? It means receiving the Lord's Supper by just going through the motions, and we're not going to do that. We're going to take time to remember the sacrifice. It means receiving the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in our hearts towards our brothers or sisters in Christ. Maybe just unconfessed sin in our lives. We need to take this time to confess that sin, to get right with God and one another. I've had brothers and sisters before tell me, Pastor, I wasn't able to receive the Lord's Supper today with the church family because I realized as we were getting ready to receive the Lord's Supper, I had unforgiveness in my heart towards this person or that person, and I couldn't receive it without getting right with that person, and that's exactly what Paul was talking about. Receiving it in a worthy manner, confessing that sin. Obviously, receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner includes outside of relationship with God. Therefore, if you're yet to receive God's gift of salvation by your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have yet to surrender your life to God through faith in Christ, if you're still on your journey to God, still learning about God, then I want to encourage you not to receive the Lord's Supper. 
I would just encourage you during this time to wait and just to allow God to speak to you, ask God to speak to you, to continue to reveal his plan, his truth, his love for you and his son, your Savior Jesus. So we're going to take this time. The altar is open as it always is. If you want to come and kneel and do business with the Father, maybe you just want to take a knee right there in the row where you're seated. You may just want to kneel just there in your chair and just cry out to the Father. We're going to take these moments, and in these moments we're specifically going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and we're going to renew our commitment to Jesus. And then in just a few moments I'll come back and We'll continue and I'll read a passage and I'll say a prayer and then we'll receive the Lord's Supper. But if you've yet to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you want to receive this gift of salvation today, then I would say, why not right here? Why not right now? Say yes to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Confess him to God and cry out to the Father and receive his gift of salvation and faith in Jesus Believe in your heart that Jesus took your place on the cross and paid your price for sin. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He is alive and desires a relationship with you. And just receive this gift of salvation by placing your faith in Jesus. We would love to celebrate with you in this decision to receive God's gift of salvation this morning. Let's take these moments and let's pray. Let's do business with the Father, and then we'll come back and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.